Hey everybody, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. If you are new here, it's a podcast about classical things. We talk about books, we talk about philosophy, we talk about art and things, sometimes we talk about ourselves. Uh, and those selves that we are talking about, one of them is A.J. Hannenberg, that's me. We're also here with Thomas Magby. Hello, that's me. And Graham Donaldson. I am talking about myself. Talking about ourselves. We're all from different parts of the country originally. This is true. Uh, Graham Donaldson, part of a different country. There you go. Mm -hmm. He's Canadian initially. And now we all live down here in sunny Austin, Texas, which is currently frigid. It's very cold here. But but yeah, so glad you guys are here. Capitalism. It's important. (laughs) Do you have a take on that, Graham? Um, (laughs) Do I have a take? Well, some people have takes on it. Uh, This is kind of a part two of Atlas Shrugged. Uh, even though when we did the part one, it wasn't really on Atlas Shrugged. It was on a little bit of uh, Ayn or Anne or however you want to pronounce her name, Rand's um, um, phil- philosophical position of, obje- of objectivism. And I've been kind of kicking around in my mind why it's called objectivism. Is it because, maybe you can correct me on this, is it called objectivism because she says the world is a place that is there and we all perceive it and you got to deal with it? And what are you going to do about it? Like, is that kind of why it's called objectivism? I have no idea. Okay. I'm looking up on the Wikipedia page right now. I'll I'll let you know. Because that was a key part of her philosophy. And you can go back and you can listen to the the first. Can I read it to you? Yeah. The name objectivism derives from the idea that human knowledge and values are objective. They exist and are determined by the nature of reality to be discovered by one's mind and are not created by the thoughts one has. Good. Okay. So that like... There's a world out there and deal with it. It's very much like a a shorthand form of her philosophy. Um, But before we get into it, so let's do a little like prep for the test. Who can, so let's do a little summary. Uh, Hannenberg, can you tell me what you remember from uh, uh, her philosophy from the last time we talked about this? What do you remember? Oh, I didn't prepare for a test. Yeah. It's It's the best kind of test. The world is good when everybody's out for themselves. You should be a maker and a doer and build stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's, that is the sign of someone who's got it going on. Good. You want to add anything to that maybe? I thought it was pretty good. I agree with everything AJ said. Um, yeah. So her philosophy in a nutshell was, is essentially that, that, um, the world's kind of broken into two kinds of people, people who, um, sort of see the world for what it is, find their place in it and do it. And then those who try to figure out ways that they can weasel out their existence from the doing it of other people. Right. Um, and she has a lot of condescension towards people who are the weasels and a lot of praise towards the people who are the doers. Yes. Um, and, uh, and the people who are doers are ones who, uh, are sort of like unapologetic about their desires and unapologetic about their, uh, their, what, how they operate and are unapologetic about finding the, the fair value price for their labor, right? Like, I do this thing and I think it's worth a hundred dollars an hour. And maybe does sees maybe values my thing. He's like, I want to pay a hundred dollars an hour. I want to pay fifty dollars an hour. And I say, Would you take seventy five? And maybe says, Okay, fine. Right, like that kind of force, mm-hmm. where I hold a high value of my labor and maybe holds a high value on his labor, which is stored in the money that he has. Mm-hmm. Um, and then people sort of haggling that out. Uh, Ayn Rand says that, that is like that's awesome. That's great. Yep. And I don't know, so I necessarily disagree with that. I think that. Um, uh, money as a store of value of one's labor is a great way to think about money mm-hmm. and a good way to organize social interactions, right? Um, and then the second part of the speech, John Galt's speech, I mean, it's not even the second part because I mean, it's hard to, to like break the signal parts because it, it is 100 pages and it does kind of 
re, you know, we tried to give you the TLDR version of it. Um, but it is a little bit ranty. Yes. Um, not that, you know. But with the second part, he gets John Galt, so the sort of the character that uh, epitomizes his speech. He moves on to talking about the genesis or where these takers or where the sort of the ethos of this other kind of people come from. And he lays the blame square on uh, um, thinking that there's a God, that there's an objective morality, uh, which is kind of strange that's called objectivism, right. um, that there's a God or that there is some, um, original sin that you are that human beings are sort of made uh, with. Uh, the default settings we come with are that of brokenness. And so she's real grumpy about that. John Galt's real grumpy about that. And the rest of the speech is about that. And... I wanted to not necessarily critique that point of view, which maybe we can in our podcast, but I kind of wanted to hold her up as somebody who is really positing a modern view of the person. Um, and uh, um, and we'll get well because I've been reading I've been reading Carl Truman's The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, where he's talking about modern man as therapeutic man, and I, maybe have you read? Um, um, the, uh, Philip Reeve. Yeah. Philip Reeve. Have you read that book? No, I got, I, I got it for Christmas because okay. that's the kind of thing I put on my Christmas list, yeah. but I have not read it yet. Okay. So maybe we'll have you do a little pricey on that in a second. Cause uh, I've never, I don't know much about it. The extent that I know about it is from Truman's book. Oh, okay. so just, cool, yeah, cool. yeah. Um, all right. So let's just sort of outline her, uh, and if you're just jumping into it, and this is your first podcast, you probably want to go back and read, sorry, listen, uh, because when you listen to things, you don't read them. Uh, <laughs> That's oh sorry that's, that's, an, that's an AMA thing. Uh, when you you want to probably go back and listen to the first episode on Atlas Shrugged just to sort of orient yourself. But John Galt comes in and he says, uh, and, and he sort of this is the paragraph that launches the second part of his speech. It does not matter who then becomes the profiteer on his renounced glory and tormented soul, a mystic god with some incomprehensible design, or any passerby whose rotting sores are held as some inexplicable claim upon him. It does not matter. The good is not for him to understand. His duty is to crawl through years of penance, atoning uh, for the guilt of his existence to any stray collector of unintelligible debts. His only concept of a value is zero. The, um, the good is that which is non-man. The name of this monstrosity, uh, monstrous absurdity is original sin. So she wants to claim, or through John Galt, wants to claim that a great defect in the modern person is the fact that we are told, according to their her point of view, we are bred, brought up, told that we are to feel guilty and that we are to be working for some kind, we are to live selflessly and we are to be working for some sort of future glory to atone for past sins. That this is sort of the default setting of humanity and that this is a big um, uh, a big con put on by people who are trying to use it as like a power game to keep us in line. Okay. Um, so the power game is this. Well, we don't want Magby to be really selfish and like live for himself. So what we're going to do is tell him that he's bad and that his desires are wicked and sinful. And the only way to rid himself of those wicked and sinful desires of wanting to better himself is to, 
A, tell him that he's bad. B, tell him that God's real mad at him. And, and C, tell him that the only way to atone for it is to give to me and give to the church and give to his community. And if he does these things, then one day God will smile upon him and welcome him into heaven and Magby will have lived a righteous life. Have you, one of these, there's a, there are two books that are going at each other. One of them is Rich Christians in an Age of Hunger. Uh, which I don't know. It, it, I think it was kind of a big deal book, mm. and then a a response to that was productive Christians in an age of guilt manipulators. <laughs> I, I've never read either of them, but I just love that back and forth between. I, I think Ayn Rand would side with that kind of second view of mm. you should throw you should ignore the first one because they're just trying to make you feel guilty to mm-hmm. get something out of you. Yes. So she always has her antennas up for somebody trying to make you feel bad to get stuff out of you. So yeah. she does she everyone's trying to con her is, is her sort of view. And I mean that's you know probably fair. Not Do you think I so? mean fair for her oh. based on the fact that she like grew up in communism. Okay. Um but no, I, I don't think it's necessarily fair. Um and so here's a, another little sentence that kind of drives her point home. The justification of sacrifice that your morality uh, propounds is more corrupt than the corruption it purports to justify. The motive after your sacrifice, it tells you, should be love, the love you ought to feel for every man, a morality that professes a belief that the values of the spirit are more precious than matter, a morality that teaches you to scorn a whore who gave her body indiscriminately to all men. This same morality demands that you surrender your soul to promiscuous love for all comers. So she definitely is um, uh, grumpy that when someone (laughs) says um, um, it is common human decency to see yourself as part of a community and to be sort of working towards that community. Uh, And if you don't, uh, it's because you're sinful and your desires are sinful, and so God is mad at you, so you got to put in all the effort to please God, and it just so happens that pleasing God is also uh, working towards the benefit of, well, my cause that I'm here to tell you about, and these kinds of things, right? So she thinks that that is a big con put on by religion, um, and uh, or, or what she calls, that sort of way of thinking, she calls them the mystics. Okay. And she says the line between someone who is a mystic and someone who is a is a dystopian dictator. All she she says all dictators are mystics. So that's that's sort of her big line. So interesting. I know. It it uh, again. You've said that this is going toward a view of modern man, but it it's that same. You've talked before about how the person who's living under a monarch, you know, th- a thousand years ago, might actually love the person who is in charge of them. Mm-hmm. Where she's drawing no distinction between the person who says that there are demands put on you by the community that you're surrounded by. When I'm imagining you think there's a huge difference between the dictator telling you to live a certain way and the Amish telling you to live a certain way. Yes. So um, um, the, the, the the critique that she has of the Christian doctrine of original sin is essentially, and she says it a little bit later in there, I won't quote it, but is essentially, why am I being blamed for something I didn't choose? Mm. I didn't choose to fall. I didn't. I wasn't given the option of falling or not falling, and been able to make a decision. My ancestors did, uh, or whatever. Adam did. Eve did, and their decision is now my problem. Not fair. Mm. That's that's sort of her central critique of of originals of of, of the fall. Um, this is sort of crystallized in so. Um, 
AJ, was David Bazan and Page of the Lion a big deal up in Spokane when you were growing up or when you were in college? I think you know we've talked about is? this before. We, we definitely talked I, about You know this. I had burritos with man. Oh, man. Seriously? I, I, it might yeah. have been during an AMA, so this might oh, be the okay. first time general listeners are Anyway, it. David Bazan is a singer-songwriter. He was the lead guy in Pedro the Lion, mm-hmm. which was, like, in the early days, part of, like— alternative Christian music. I don't know. Like Sufi and Stevens is also in that camp of like people that have some sort of affiliation or growing up with Christian faith who are writing sort of artistically sophisticated stuff as opposed to sort of like, um, you know, kind of paint by numbers pop songs that there was a lot of that growing up in the Christian world Mm -hmm. is a lot of like, I remember having a magazine, like a Christian magazine, I think it was called Breakaway or Brio, something like that. And basically the last, the last page of the magazine was like, if you like Coldplay, you'll love like God Rocks okay. and be like, oh, cool. They're just like the Christian Coldplay. Right. There was a lot of that bad Christian music back in the day. Probably still is a lot of bad Christian music. Um, but anyway, but David Bazan was with Page of the Lion was somebody who was sort of at least like putting out some sort of thoughtful music uh, that wrestled with Christian themes. And then presumably, according to the, the trajectory of his albums, has had some major blow up and break up with the faith. Is that mm-hmm. a fair statement? I would, I, we've definitely talked about this. Probably. I like when I had burritos with him, he was going through that yeah, crisis. Yeah, yeah. And so we talked to him, with him about his leaving the faith and the fallout that was happening with his marriage yeah. and how that was happening. And um, the reason rough. I bring it up is because he wrote an album, which is essentially his breakup album with Christianity mm-hmm. and with God called curse your branches. That's the name of the album. And um, and the song, it's why it's called Curse Your Branches, is that he, in the song, it says, all fallen leaves should curse their branches um, for, basically, I can't, I can't remember the poetry of it, but the, the sentiment is, all fallen leaves should curse their branches f- um, for not having the chance to to not fall. Like, if leaves wanted to stay on the tree, they should have, but, they, um, but um, they're fallen, and so they should curse the branch they came from because um, uh, they didn't have the choice to remain unfallen. You want me to read it? Sure. All fallen leaves should curse their branches for not letting them decide where they should fall and not letting them refuse to fall at all. Thank you. That's, that's the, the line. Cor- I think that's the chorus. That's yeah. a good line. Yeah. Yes. And so his, that sentiment is very much Ayn Rand sentiment. Why should I adhere to a community that is putting demands on me for a mistake that I didn't make um, uh, uh, and uh, is asking me to sacrifice. And the, the stick that you're holding up against me for this is a punishment from God uh, for some sort of hell or damnation or is a carrot saying like, well, you'll get your goodies in heaven if you just are a good little girl. Right. Like she's like, screw that. That's, you know, that's not, I'm not playing that game. That's not fair. And I think a lot of modern people, that's probably their take on modern religion, especially Western Christianity is like, um, um, this is a game I'm not going to play. Uh, uh, I'm not going to be. I'm not going to be sort of beholden to your to your codes of ethics. Uh, you're not going to guilt me into into doing X, Y, and Z in the name of selfless love. Right. Um, and so she has John Galt as the character basically stand up and say like, "Opt out. We're not doing this." Okay. Um, maybe let's start. Let's start with that one. Uh, let's start with that. All right. What What would be the like? Um, the, the 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 sort of theological retort to that uh, to that statement. You got to serve someone, isn't that you're going to be a part of a community or a? Well, yeah, you're. There is some way that you're going to follow that. In Ayn Rand's example, 
objectivism puts demands on a person. It still yep. tells you that you need to live a certain way or else you're a mooch and you don't deserve to live essentially. Mm-hmm. So that you haven't escaped the problem of, that's not a theological one. The, the theological one I was pointing to before is just, um, Jesus says that everyone has, has a master, right? Mm-hmm. So there's still something that you have to serve. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. She did. She is coming in saying like, listen, there's, uh, or yeah, there is, um, there are st- still fences on this playground that you have to live in. Like there are yeah. still, and there are still sort of things you've got to do. And if you don't, you're a bad person and you're the bad person. If you put demands on people that they don't want to do, blah, right. blah, blah, blah. Um, my, and I, and, and I, of course I've got, you know, theological, uh, rebuttals, but, um, um, but the reason I wanted to bring this up is, is that I, I think her, she is coming out of a certain view of person. Um, and it's the view, and it's, a, and, and what I said at the beginning of the podcast is that the, that view of person that she's positing is that man is at its very basic, first and foremost, an individual. Mm-hmm. And I think even just saying that, we as modern people are like, D- yes, duh, of course we are. Like, AJ is not thinking my thoughts. Yeah. Uh, uh, I am an individual. Like, I this is that is the most basic building block of humanity is me as an individual. But that statement isn't a given throughout history. Right. Um, what is so Aristotle doesn't even say that. Aristotle says the basic building block of of society is. Let me remember. Is it, the it, is? it is the family. Yeah. yeah. The, the basic building block of society is not the individual, but it is the family. Right. Uh, natural government, I think he calls right. it. Um, and, uh, and the family. So you are that, that even the biological world has a communal aspect built into it, right. which makes all of those sort of science fiction novels like Brave New World and novels where you, where you think about like people being mass produced or not be, being brought out of families are sort of posited as these kind of horrific, these horrific things, or, or as, as these sort of like interesting thought experiments, because human beings at their very nature are communal. We are born into a family, whether or not, um, um, and, then, and this is probably why we have so many of those stories of the ancient heroes who are born into a family that don't want them, and then off they go into the woods to be killed, but then they don't, and they come back, and through like, you know, almost like family magnets, they come back to their family at some point, right? Like we just have that in the ancient world has, as, has human person as communal baked into it. Mm-hmm. And Christianity has human person as communal baked into it. Um, uh, Christianity, uh, uh, sort of the, the, the faith of the, the, of the original sins fall story doesn't say, you're right, Ayn Rand, Here's a reason why you, as an individual, would have bro- would have eaten the fruit as well if you had been given the choice. Right. It says no. You're right. Your ancestors did eat the fruit, and you still have to deal with it. Like you have to deal with it, right. um, uh, uh, whether or not you think that that's that's fair or not. That is the givenness to steal um, to steal another modern philosopher's phrase. That is the givenness of society. Is that you are um, sort of born into the mistakes of the community. Um, so, um, can I, so yeah, part it. of what then it gets interesting and I think ties in with Ayn Rand is if you change, if the individual unit isn't the person, it's the family, then you get into this question of where does government start? Yeah. Cause then it's no longer about individuals kind of forming them into a family that they all agree to be there. It's, there's kind of a natural state to, you have parents and they have children and parents are in charge and children listen. And so there's already something built in of like authority in 
the system. That's right. You hear that, students? <laughs> yeah, sure. <Right. laughs> and then, and then also with if you put family as that kind of lowest level, you then get all these intermediary institutions. I don't think um, Truman goes into no, this. he doesn't. Oh, he, he does. I haven't gotten too far but, enough into the book. But the, what we're all reacting to is Rousseau saying that all that the only way that we get society is from a social contract that we as individuals tacitly sign yeah. by living with each other, and that isn't. That's the not given. That's the thing that might not be true. Mm-hmm. And maybe I don't know if that's where you're going with it. No, my, my point is that um, is that she's operating out of a sense of what a, of what sort of the the most basic block building yes. block is. Right. That is very different than um, that, that. That is very modern. That the human that the most basic building block of society is the individual. Right. Whereas um, uh, that um, in the ancient world. Uh, well, let's talk about Truman. So okay. Carl Truman wrote this book. It's called The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And he's basically trying to trace the intellectual uh, uh, sort of fingerprint of the modern sexual revolution and modern sort of identity politics. Yes. He, um, he's also riffing, you referenced the name, but Philip Reef wrote a book called The Triumph of the Therapeutic. Mm-hmm. And it's a, I haven't read it, but it's, apparently it's very dense. And so Truman's mm-hmm. also doing a work of translation to yes. take those ideas from um, Philip Reef and then put them in a, a book that is like generally accessible. Mm-hmm. That's the other part of it. Hmm. And so um, uh, a very sort of crude way, and he even in this book says that this isn't, this isn't a really great way to think about it. But he says a very crude way of thinking about how humanity has viewed the self over time has been like in the ancient world, it was the political man, man involvement with the, with the groups around him. In the Middle Ages, it was the religious man, man's involvement in the, uh, the religious sort of infrastructure around him. Uh, capital man or economic man, man in relationship with like the, the sort of uh, um, mercantile structures around him. And, and then the, modern man is the therapeutic man. Are these which the is lamest a, superheroes hmm? that we could have? <laughs> yeah. like capital man? Is capital that, man. Yeah, I would not. I don't think um, I put money on him. Um, he will, um, I will uh, save you with mercantilism. <laughs> <laughs> and then um, – and then therapeutic man, and and I think Truman's point with therapeutic man is that this is it, it is a much drastic, it is a big drastic change, which is man is viewing um, sort of his own sense of an emotive self as as sort of like the the orienter of, of humanity. Yeah. Um, maybe there's a step that we could go through where Anne Rand is like this sort of bridge character between economic man and therapeutic man. I, I think that's kind of an interesting thought. I just thought of it right now. Um, so I don't have anything else to say about it other than I think there's probably something to her as like she herself and in, in her John Galt character is working through the the man in society versus the man who's like standing up and saying like, here I am, right. uh, which is a therapeutic man. Deal with me if how you want. Um, I, I would typically, I would, I wasn't seeing the connection because mm. objectivism is explplicitly anti-feeling, anti-emotion, anti-subjectivism. Mm-hmm. But, but she's. But, but it, the thing but is, it's, it's so, such. It's so, it's so much declaration of self. It's pro-expression, and that's <laughs> yes. and that's I think. And maybe you'll want to define some yeah. terms around therapy. But like that's the therapeutic part of it's all about my expression of what I will into the world, and yeah. that is therapeutic. And so um, I guess this is sort of the point that I was wanting to get with with uh, Ayn Rand's thought is that. Um, um, she sees it as a productive thing that these people are going to look at the world and say like, I can manipulate this matter for this end. Right. And of course, steel exists in nature to become railroad tracks. Like that's objective, right. which I think is absurd. Right. Um, uh, and so she like, so she, uh, in her, in her previous yeah, you don't point, think that? <laughs> I think that. 
I think so in the previous podcast, she was saying like, um, you know, the man looks at atoms and says, I can manipulate these into generating power. Mm -hmm. And she's sort of taking it as human beings are going to look at the natural world and be able to say, here is the good that can be done with it. But that's I think that's a silly thought. Um, because we can produce technology that we have no idea what to do with. Yeah, not everybody looks at a forest and is like, I'm going to cut this down. Or not everybody says like... I don't. Um, That's exactly right. VR technology is going to... Uh, here are the, like, the, good, the ways that we can harness it for good. Like, we can design technology that... It's basically because we can develop it. Yes. Isn't that a lot of um, the way these things work? Mm-hmm. And so her, her... I think, actually, one of the big problems that Ayn Rand, I think, would have to confront is... Would she praise or would she blame Silicon Valley that has been able to extract a lot of wealth from weaponizing like our likes and dislikes and biological functions with with social media, right? Like, uh, you know, there's that uh, that Netflix documentary that was talking about like you know um, the sort of perniciousness of of uh, our social media apparatus that like actually is is kind of gotten into a biological hack on our, the you know, like the reward, yeah, the social dilemma. It, like our reward yeah. centers are now like being profited, are profited off of. Yeah. Would she look at that and say like, oh yeah, good job. My, like my smart, uh, my smart makers. Or would she see that as the ultimate taking? I have no idea. Does she have anyone who's in like newspapers or television or radio in the book? Cause I don't Usually remember. they're bad people. Okay. Yeah. Because again, the hero is someone who actually develops a new use for steel and it ends up being something that helps lots of people. Yeah. It's like actually good for the mm-hmm. railroads. I don't know if she has a, again, I don't know if she has categories for that stuff. Yeah. She's writing in the It'd 40s be, and 50s, right? But the thing is, I wonder what modern, if modern objectivists look at, at Silicon Valley and say like, here are pr- people, productive people make, making great things for the benefit of humanity or they're the ultimate like mystics. <laughs> I imagine that, well, maybe, but I would imagine they would say it's free people choosing to participate yeah, in the yeah. platform. I think you're right. Therefore, if there's profit to ma- be made off of it, there's no mm-hmm. evil happening because mm-hmm. it's yeah. all free choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyway, um, um, her criticism of the old ways is because it, it posits a communal man. It right. posits that somebody is part, I'm trying to like avoid doing the meme. We are part of a society. <laughs> um, Good. But uh, but it's you but know, we're part of a society. We're part of yeah. a society. Um, we live that we live in a society. Oh my gosh! Um, there are students that are roaring with laughter right now, or cringing. Yeah. Probably more cringing. <laughs> um, anyway, do you just want to quote Joker for the rest of this episode? Uh, is that what's going to happen? Okay. Um, but so her her big kicker is no, I'm not. Human beings are not. We are individual uh, creatures, and uh, we we get to determine. Are uh, whether we play by the rules or not. Um, we, but that's coming out of this sort of modern sense of the therapeutic self. So okay, so Carl Truman when he talks about this, let's. Um, um, that yes, that, that he says, uh, or his point in this book is that the human person that that wants to hold up as the ultimate category for understanding themselves as their desire, um, which I think Anne Rand's characters fall into, she would say their desire is just conforming to objective reality. Right. Yes. But I don't think. But I. Um, I don't think that that's. True, but therapeutic man also thinks they're doing that. Exactly, therapeutic man also thinks that his uh, that his desires are the natural are yes uh, are conforming to the objective reality. Yes, um, 
And so Truman's criticism of that by saying that some um, uh, this sort of expressive individualism um, is uh, so yeah the hallmark of this modern person. He gives a really fantastic example of the break between um, um, human beings thinking of themselves as part of institutions and part of communities that form them, which mm-hmm. is the old way, versus human beings that only see institutions as an apparatus for self-expression, mm-hmm. which is sort of the new way. And he says, we can see this in the history of dancing. And so he quotes Roger, uh, Roger Scruton, who is a, um, a – would you call him a classical scholar, Roger Scruton? I don't think of him for that. I think of him for his writings. More I think so of his like, writings of be- on beauty, on aesthetics. Yeah, yeah. there's um, a great documentary. That, yes, about but Roger, please tell me that's where scrutiny comes from. No, it does no. not. Although probably it probably should. Um, English but, philosopher. Like I feel like when you name scrutiny, you're just you have to lean into that. You do. You got to be a little curmudgeonly. And he had like the coolest library. Oh, sweet. Yeah. I haven't seen that. Oh, Is yeah, it actually Google good? that picture. Okay. All right. Anyway, Roger. so Roger Scruton sort of says, okay, the history of dancing and how dancing was used in, in societies is a perfect example of showing the difference between communal man of the older way and modern therapeutic man as, as the new way. So here's, here's the um, – this is taken from Dancing Properly uh, in Confessions of a Heretic Selected Essays by Roger Scruton. Uh, this isn't a quote. This is a summary. This is um, Truman's summary. Roger Scruton notes the shift in the understanding of selfhood relative to forms of dance. Commenting on earlier forms of dancing, he observes that such typically assumed live music, formal steps that needed to be learned, and a meaning or pleasure derived from the individual being part of a coordinated whole, a social group. So think of like the old dances that you would see in like a Jane Austen novel. They're all dancing in a line and clapping their hands. Yeah, this guy's a line dancer. Yeah. Yes. He, exactly. likes, he likes yeah. Western bars. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah, or even folk dancing, right? Yes. Uh, uh, swinging around the maypole. Such dancing was thus deeply social, and the ways in which the individual expressed his or her identity was communal. He contrasts this with the modern nightclub-style dancing in which the individual simply – to use, the, to use the colloquial phrase, does his or her own thing. The former, he says, involves dancing with others, the latter at others, which incidentally has also involved a sexualizing of dancing's purpose consonant with the sexualizing of society. So this is Scruton's, uh, Roger Scruton's point, is that, you know, the history of dancing, there you go, there's an example of sort of this shift where man back in the day um, their relationship with institutions and government and church and the city was that those were institutions that you were a member that you participated in and that uh, there, was things you, there was responsibilities you had. You needed to learn the steps. You needed to know how to do the thing. And then when you participated in, in it, like that was sort of the formative thing and an enjoyable thing. And that was you – know, com- you understood yourself as part of this community. Um, whereas the modern person um, says the, inst- the, 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 the nightclub exists for me to go and express my individuality and it doesn't take very long for that expression of individuality to also be a sexualization of the, of the medium. Mm-hmm. That's an interesting thought. Uh, and this is I think Carl Truman's point is that the modern therapeutic man is going to – is eventually going to – everything is a performance and then everything ends up becoming like – sexualized because of that idea that everything is a performance. Maybe that's a whole other podcast. Um, But um, this, I think, explains and shows 
uh, in, in Atlas Shrugged, all of these characters, um, all of these like the good characters in the book, all have an antagonistic relationship with institutions. That institutions are there to like steal my ideas. And, um, and so, you know, what is the great sort of um, climax of this story is but a hundred page declaration of what a character what thinks, one character what one thinks. character feels yes. about the world, yes. right? Um, so it all builds up to this sort of like uh, declaration uh, and expression of what as far as he's concerned, what actually exists in this world and what actually is true. Right. Um, but uh, my, my point that I'm bringing is that um, this, is, this is a therapeutic thing. Like the, the character is, is um, by not seeing himself as part of a society, he's kind of this shadowy guy that lives by himself in the mountains right. um, and sort of does this big radio address. He is a example of this, of what Truman's talking about with this sort of therapeutic self. Can you say what you mean by therapeutic self? Uh, well, uh, um, somebody who says that my understanding of myself is purely based on my own desires and my own um, – uh, see what Truman says. Um, that um, – let's see if I can find it here. He's talking about um, Charles Taylor – who, to, who sort of uh, wrote about this in Sources of Self. Maybe this can help. Taylor highlights three points of significance in the modern development of what it means to be a self. So this is like the, the shift between, this is probably his, a good definition of the therapeutic self. One, a focus on inwardness or the inner psychological life as decisive for who we think we are, the affirmation of ordinary life that develops in the modern area and the notion that nature provides us with an inner moral source. Um, so let me say that again, that the modern self is a focus on inwardness or the inner psychological life as decisive for who we think we are. Number two, the affirmation of ordinary life that develops in the modern, area, modern era, and the notion that nature provides us with an inner moral source. Yeah. Um, so lead, like you do you because that moral yeah, source exactly. is coming from inside you. They yes. lead to a prioritization of the individual's inner psychology. We might even say feelings or intuitions for our sense of who we are and what the purpose of our lives is. Yeah. Our and life it must is. be discovered, mm -hmm. not made. Yeah. Yeah. And, and kind of can't be critiqued or reasoned with. It can't be critiqued or reasoned so with. So yeah. I, okay. I, I know it's true. I know it's right for me. And anyone who disagrees with me is wrong yeah. because I need to be true to myself. Because it's me. Yeah. It's, it's, my lived, it's my lived experience. Yeah, sure. And so um, then. And by like, the way, experience is always lived. <laughs> That's a good point. Journey quest. It's, man, it's another one of those. It's another one of those things that just drives me bananas. Lived experience? Yeah. yeah. Just say experience. Yeah, because it means the life. same thing. Yeah. Like, you, of course you lived it. It's your experience. Oh, my God. I love that these are, these are the things that... Uh, Language you, is important. It, I guess well, the thing is, actually, the fact that we call it lived experience means that you sort of take it from experience and put it in, and then make it a, a, a buzzword. And when you make it a buzzword it or you make it a category, you've kind of like... Anyway, expanded the meaning. You've expanded or? the meaning. You've enshrined it into a vocabulary of the sort of psychological... The, this, well, it's like the vocabulary of the therapeutic self. Right. And, um, and because you it's can, your lived experience, it can't be reasoned with. you can kind with. of tell who... Yes. Yeah. Anyway, that um, drives me nuts. The, the changing of the meaning of words to create like enclaves of thought is also an interesting thing. Anyway, yeah. I think your connection between Ayn Rand and the therapeutic self is, I think it's super interesting, but I don't think Ayn Rand would think that no, she's doing definitely a therapeutic she would project. Not. She would think, again, that he is just reacting to the objective world. Right. And this is the way, and this is the mm -hmm. only way to object to, or the, the only way to react to the reality. 
So then how do we know he's wrong? Or, or maybe are you saying that? Um, I'm d- so how do we know he's wrong is I think, and this is where I'm, br- I'm going to bring in, and this is kind of weird because Dostoevsky, she's talking after, you know, having fled communism, and right. Dostoevsky is talking about before communism exists. But um, this idea of man as an individual over other men versus man as being part of sort of the great brotherhood of humanity created by God is is very much at the center of what Dostoevsky thinks about. And um, so I think the perfect criticism of Ayn Rand comes at the end of Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment. Okay. Um, and so just as a brief, um, as a brief uh, um, um, sort of intro to this, so Crime and Punishment is a book about a man who thinks – he is extraordinary. He thinks that he is like the chosen one, basically. He, he thinks that he has been born and he has a moral right to break laws in order to bring about a more progressive, happy future. Well, he, thinks, he thinks he might be. He thinks he might be. He thinks he might be. He has a pretty he wants strong... To test it. He yeah. wants to test it out. Yeah, he, he's, thinks he's, he, he knows he's pretty smart. He's kind of good looking. Yep. Uh-huh. Got a lot going for him. He's like, if there was anybody who was like the next Napoleon in the world, it could be. I have a good shot at yeah. it. And so he wants to test it out, and he tests it out by murdering, murdering. an old lady and her sister. and her pregnant retarded sister, um, and the and the child, child. yeah, the pregnant, yeah, yeah, the pregnant mentally retarded sister and the baby. Um, and actually, it was a secondary. He did not accident, he didn't mean, that, he didn't but he still does it. Yeah. But to do it, he says, I should murder her, steal her stuff. And if I'm actually extraordinary, I won't feel guilty because I'm going to use that money to start my campaign of being like awesome. the Ubermensch. N- Napoleon would have killed a hundred old ladies to make his project happen. Exactly. So and killing so, one shouldn't be a big deal. Shouldn't be a big deal. Okay. So you have this <laughs> philosophy of I'm special um, and basically working out of his own belief as to who he is. He he has a thesis that he is uh, extraordinary and special and that um, the sort of superstitions uh, and the morals of the past don't apply to him because he's going to move the, the ball of humanity forward. And we can all recognize that that's idiocy because we are special. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Anyway, yes. Um, and so he is uh, – um, and the whole book is then him realizing very slowly that – um, he is not special and we're realizing very slowly that like um, uh, that humanity like there is not two different kinds of people we're all people and um, hmm. and the book is very much um, like also a very weird way of how this is what one, this is what the detective says the the detective kind of posits towards the end of the book that God is taking the great wickedness that Raskolnikov has done and is working it together for the salvation of Raskolnikov's soul and Raskolnikov's like oh I don't like that that really makes me mad that God is like turning my evil to good. Right. Because I wanted to do the evil and own it. Yes. Yeah. I wanted to own the evil, right? Like. I wanted to be the one to turn that into good. Yes. God is and, usurping and I, my spot. And I can't. Anyway. Is, it, is this after he's confessed or. Is, it's right around the time he's same about time. to. Okay. Now, he goes to jail, he confesses, and he sort of decides to eat it and own it and goes to jail and. Um, does it, hard labor, right? And does he? hard labor, yeah. and it does it. And, the, and while he's in jail, it is to his his sort of progression towards redemption and um, asking for forgiveness right. and and sort of like uh, confessing his sins to God. But while he's in prison, he has a dream, and Dostoevsky just sort of has this dream as a sort of throw, not a throwaway thing. It has nothing to do with the whole rest of the book, but the dream is in the story, and the dream is Dostoevsky's fear about what happens if these 
people who think they're special, if everybody is somebody who thinks that they are special, or, or in other words, I, I think if you follow my logic that um, that John Galt isn't too far away from what Raskolnikov thought, right. um, that what would happen in society if everybody was uh, was a little more Galtian? Um, that maybe I can I can hear people who are big fans of Ayn Rand uh, thinking that that's unfair because John Galt's got this like don't harm other people uh, sentiment in it, but um, um, but anyway maybe that's another tra- a train of thought we can follow in the after the after show. Uh, but here's the dream, and this is the dream that this is the the fear uh, that Dostoevsky has about the vision. Um, if I'm putting all the pieces together, this is Dostoevsky's fear of the future of what happens if the therapeutic man exists as the predominant type. Wow. All right. In his illness, he had dreamed that the whole world was doomed to fall victim to some terrible, as yet unknown and unseen pestilence spreading to Europe from the depths of Asia. Everyone was to perish, except for certain very few chosen ones. Some new trichinae had appeared, microscopic creatures that lodged themselves in men's bodies. But these creatures were spirits endowed with reason and will. Those who received them into themselves immediately became possessed and mad. But never, never had people considered themselves so intelligent and unshakable in the truth as did these infected ones. Never had they thought their judgments, their scientific conclusions, their moral convictions and beliefs more unshakable. Entire settlements, entire cities and nations would be infected and go mad. Everyone became anxious, and no one understood anyone else. Each thought the truth was contained in himself alone, and suffered looking at others, beat his breast, wept, and wrung his hands. I can't even. I'm so tired. (laughs) They did not know whom or how to judge, could not agree or what to regard as evil, what as good. They did not know whom to accuse, whom to vindicate. People killed each other in some sort of meaningless spite. They gathered into whole armies against each other. But, already on the march, the armies would suddenly begin destroying themselves. The ranks would break up. The soldiers would fall upon one another, stabbing and cutting, biting and eating one another. In the cities, the bells rang all day long. Everyone was being summoned, but no one knew who was summoning them or why, and everyone felt anxious. The most ordinary trade ceased because everyone offered his own ideas, his own corrections, and no one could agree. Agriculture ceased. Here and there, people would band together, agree among themselves to do something, swear never to part, but immediately begin something completely different from what they themselves had just suggested began accusing one another, fighting, stabbing. Fires broke out, famine broke out. Everyone and everything was perishing. The pestilence grew and spread further and further. Only a few people in the whole world could be saved. They were pure and chosen, destined to begin a new generation of people and a new life, to renew and purify the earth. But no one had seen these people anywhere. No one had heard their words or voices. And it goes on. So, the Benedict option at the end, right? It is the Benedict mm-hmm. option at the end. So, I mean, this and it, going through the book, like th- that, the, all those people that are like infected by this, this like ego disease. Um, is, I've seen that Star Trek episode. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> is very much like Dostoevsky saying, what would happen if the entire world believed what Raskolnikov believed? And I think what would happen if the entire world uh, really did own that ethos of, um, um, 
it is the individual that matters above everything else. Everything else should be subjective to the individual institutions, um, uh, governments, uh, um, 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 reality itself needs to be folded under uh, the man who can see clearly right. to sort of maybe borrow what you get phrase. is living in the world of Twitter. Yeah. That's what it feels like. What, but what does that mean? Everyone has their own opinion. They kind of express that opinion and they're not really. And are exasperated when not everybody when no one agrees with them. With them. Yeah. yeah. I guess that's what I'm wondering. Like, what is, is this a bad outcome? Uh, you're, when you say the world of Twitter, are you saying that negatively? Well, it's. Yes, partially because it seems like it is because I love Twitter. I just want to be very clear about that. It is a it's a place of primarily criticism of both movements and and society and governments and whatever there is. Very rarely do you find a guy who is humbly saying like I am a part of several different institutions and they all do a fairly good job, even though they make mistakes. And I'm cool with it, sure. and I will do my part. Yeah. Like, right, I mean, more often you have people that are willing to stand up on their own two feet and say uh, everything else sucks. Yes, and exactly. that yeah. sounds like I don't want to live in a place where everything is criticized all the time. Yeah. And criticism is one of those things that happens on Twitter. Even though I know I'm, there's a whole, like, mind game happening where I'm criticizing Twitter uh, currently, sure. and I, I recognize that, but, but I would like to live in a place where someone is like, yes, I'm committed to some principles, but I can do it quietly and I can do it yeah. in an organization that I enjoy. And if you ask me, I'll share my opinion, mm-hmm. but I'm not going to scream it in your face and then abandon you if you disagree. Sure. I think mm-hmm. that's fair. Um, do you agree with Dostoevsky's characterization? I do. I do. I, and I also think about like, okay, um, um, I feel like what's Galt's Gulch. So this is like the utopia created by all of these objective mm-hmm. thinking people is like going to work for like five years. And then there's going to be some sort of like irreconcilable dispute right. where I'm clearly objectively seeing the situation and you are no longer objectively seeing the situation and right. you think the other thing. And it's like, all right, well, you're going to go create like, like uh, Steve's Gulch. Steve's. Yeah. You're going to go. It's a Gulch Gulch and like Meg B's hive. Uh-huh. Or whatever. That's pretty good. Name. Um, Actually, thank you. that's pretty good. Um, and then it's going to be, and then we're going to have these competing things. And this is Magby's monastery, please. Yes, Ooh, please. <laughs> and wow. I think so. This is this is sort of the the naive, naivete of of Ayn Rand is that she thinks that there's like the secret group of people that all think the same that are right, right, and everyone else are stupid. And is there a government in Galt's Gulch? I can't remember. I can't remember either. Because mm. what. I'm just There's probably like a giant block of gold that like is the <laughs> government. determines all the rules. Yes. Anyway, yeah. um, so my my point being that uh, we got a lot of feedback from from the Ayn Rand episode from before, saying that maybe we weren't we weren't like critical enough of Ayn Rand uh, or whatnot. But um, so maybe this is critical enough that that her philosophy is um, basically the other side of the materialist coin that if followed to, like, if sort of let to play itself out is just going to create as much misery as the collectivist uh, materialist of communism, right? Like, um, she's reacting against um, communism saying, like, you must be, you know, you are part of the social whole and you must sacrifice everything for the good of everybody. Um, And... Uh, and coming out of a, a, uh, a material, materialist view of the universe, which Hanberg talked about in his um, Communist Manifesto episode. And she says, you're right about the materialism of the universe, but you're wrong about the individual, and it's all about the individual. And if we sort of organize everything about the, 
about the individual's expression of self, we're going to get to some pretty dystopian places as well. Whereas like Solzhenitsyn, who was a um, uh, who's the, the person who sort of starts off Truman's book, uh, Solzhenitsyn was a uh, lived lived and survived under communism. And when someone said, "Hey, man, like, why did how did communism happen?" He said, "Oh, well, you know, we forgot God." And he's people sort of criticize Solzhenitsyn for that, saying like, "Oh, well, you're just going back to the old ways. That's you know, that's that's you. The old ways are what got us in this mess in the first place." Um, but his point being, uh, well, point being that we forgot God, but also a view of man as um, not just an individual or not just electric meat that be, can be manipulated by the power structures of so of centralized government, right. but as well, like the member in that dance or someone that ha- that needs to, that goes to institutions to be formed and has responsibilities to family, but also has, you know, uh, uh, is, is like the great classical tradition is thinking through the relationship between state and family and, and, um, and is, is part of, um, a social whole that has a spiritual element to it. If we go back to the episode that we did on can classical education still happen, right. one of Hicks's big criticisms of, cla- of modern classical education not being able to still happen is that nobody believes in, an, in a spiritual and eternal dimension to human existence right. as something that should be forming us. Right. Um, um, so anyway, I don't know if there's any, I have anything else to add to this. Well, I'm wondering what then – like what institutions are missing or uh, – like what kind of loyalty is necessary yeah. because like, so take, take Rand's example. She, she has a point in being critical of her government, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Like, and her fleeing was very good for her. Same with Solzhenitsyn leaving Russia as well. So there are, there are some loyalties that we shouldn't give or mm-hmm. there are some groups that we shouldn't associate with. So then I just wonder, again, this is what I said last time. I think if the problem you're trying to solve is, things being stolen from you in your country, then Rand's solution is a good one. Yes. But there are huge things she's not thinking about. Correct. Such as how does the family exist in this? How do um, churches exist? Like how do like local groups exist? Yeah. So that's what I'm wondering. Like what, do you have any thoughts on? No, I mean, I think hers, her answer is just a, a totally economic one, which is not, um, um, but, I think she would probably, yeah. She, I mean, she was like a, you know, infamous, infamous, uh, um, she, she cheated on her husband, right? right. Like, a lot. Right. Uh, and sort of justified it on these grounds of like, um, this was my, this is what I wanted to do. Right. <laughs> but I'm asking if you're, so you're criticizing the Randian position of the individual being the, like the only thing that matters. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then what's the alternative of, um, the, a person's loyalty should be first and foremost to their family. It should be to their employer. It should be to like, where does that then loyalty yeah. go? Um, and may, I don't know where we are in time. No, but. I don't. And I don't really have a thought out answer to it that I can think of right now, but I can say that this really is like the, one of the core questions of the ancient world. Mm-hmm. And this is what Aristotle is getting at when he's writing the politics right. is, okay, we are people that like are like an individual person, but, um, but we clearly live in, <laughs> in a society. We live in a society, yeah. <laughs> and so then how do we rectify those two things? Yep. And Rand says the way we rectify it is like we big up the individual and then the other side of the coin, I guess maybe the, the collectivist side of it is we big up the society. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, like and, and much of, the, of antiquity was trying to 
rectify those two things together. Mm-hmm. Um, so basically what I'm trying to say is like ANREX is min-maxing okay. on, on, um, Thanks, on individuality yeah. and communism is min-maxing That's... on society. And there's something, there's something more in the middle. That okay. to have. I don't know. I know. Um, I am curious what that middle is. Yeah. Cause that's, Again, Truman's book is, is great. I then the question is always, well, then what next? Yeah. And Rand has the very clear outcome of what's next is to become a trader of your capital, mm-hmm. to become a trader of your value as, mm-hmm. a, as a worker. Okay. But then what do you do if it's no longer about pure loyalty to myself? Mm-hmm. Again, is that, okay, then is my pure loyalty to what? Is, mm-hmm. yeah. so, maybe that's a question yep. to dive into more in the in-between. So are uh, you, are you d- uncomfortable with the unmoored self, a self who has no allegiance? Like if, if, is your question, well, if you're not yes. having an allegiance to yourself, where does it go? Yes. The, the real concern I have, and I don't know the right way to state it is that, so if we swing totally back the other way, where it's just about my social place and maintaining it, I should still be in Atlanta, Georgia, where the Magbees live. And like, I take the role my father had before me and I, and nothing changes. There's like a, there's a pure stability, but there's also a lack of progress under that system. Does that make, so if my loyalty is to my nuclear family, then my job as a son is to become my father. Well, or if I step it out and it's actually my broader family, it's what do Magbees do? There's a Magbee company out in Atlanta, then my job becomes to like take over that company. Well, then that means the same thing I just said, nothing is supposed to change ever. And I don't think that's the ideal. And that's Mm -hmm. where I think Rand is a helpful corrective to that of a person should seek to maximize the value of their labor. I think there's something really useful in that. Does that make sense? I'm like, I, mm-hmm. and I maybe there's not some like one answer to end on, but like, it just if all of my associations are my own choice, that doesn't feel like I've answered Truman's problem, right? It's still about my individual expression in all of these groups, mm-hmm. as opposed to some kind of sustained loyalty. Yeah, that's good. Um, yeah, I, I I'm only partway through Truman's book, I, I don't think he goes to answer this. I think he's more trying to diagnose what he sees as um, sort of um, the silliness of, of a lot of these sort of um, modern takes on, on well, yeah. Um, can I, can I give a, a proposal for maybe a, a system of, of sure. allegiance that works? Can I, can I just, so like in your okay. example, it would be like you would just always stay in Spokane. And like maybe you love that, but essentially we're telling everyone they need to like stay because there are strong expectations on you from the communities around you and you are needed to stay there to keep those institutions going Mm -hmm. your family your church and none of us did that and none of us did that's my point and most modern people don't. you've you've moved from canada you've moved from spokane i moved from georgia through dallas through whatever so we've none of us have done this thing that we're trying to say is a really good thing of like the strong loyalty to some unit outside of Mm -hmm. yourself does that make sense yeah. Yes, but okay. I, I have a proposal for okay, where you could where yeah. you could feel like confident in putting yeah, your loyalty. Good. And of Let's course, for our our listeners who aren't Christian, this is going to be a theistical answer. I'm a Christian guy. I feel like this is this is kind of where I land. Okay. But my so my answer to the crime and punishment problem, and we probably talked about it in crime and punishment, is that they're great. Men are only great as they adhere to the Tao, right? Okay. So one of my students, when we were talking about it, said there are no great men, only great purposes, and so. We call men great when they make great effort for a purpose that was already widely recognized as good. Okay. Right? So, you know, people that are fighting for freedom end up being great men because freedom from an oppressive regime is a good thing. Right. Right? So I think the Christian ethos, and pretty consistently in scripture, it's death to self, right? So humility is self-forgetfulness. There's verses that say, die to yourself every day, which sounds horrifying to the modern mind, but... 
what that does is it frees you from having to prove yourself to the world, which is actually a pretty great weight off your shoulders. And you can give your allegiance only to the good, right? And if that good is stepping in and helping your family when they need it and helping the family business, that's fine. Mm -hmm. If the good is more that you need to help your nuclear family and it'd be good for them to move and for you to start something new, that's great. If, if the good is that, well, the, the business that your dad made is diseased. The management structure is bad. People aren't like they're working there and they're getting their trade, Mm -hmm. but continued loyalty to a diseased structure like that would be a bad thing. Mm -hmm. Then it should be abandoned. Right. And so therefore it is not the, the organization itself that has your loyalty, it is loyalty only to the good without self-interest. And so what that means is that you can help those around you as is needed without necessarily considering, okay, what what do I want? Just find what's good. You don't think that still puts the individual in the seat of picking what all those good things are? It doesn't necessarily. Um, yes, there, will, there are going to be times when you have to have a mode of free choice. And this came up in our our episode on existentialism as a humanism, right? If you are going to go to war and help your country or stay home and help your mother, right? right, You're going to have to make a choice, right? right? And dying to self in that choice is a good thing. Less of what I want and more like, okay, what is actually the good, right thing for me to do? And at some point you might have to just choose. But all things being equal, I say you can. Just make the choice, right? Um, I'm I'm not sure that there's necessarily a negative way to go about it if both choices are equally good, right? That is fair. That that would be where I land. Yeah, I I just I don't think that totally I don't think it solves the problem. It's still that individual making those choices. I'm not sure there's an answer to the question I'm asking right now. It's more of a like, what is the alternative supposed to look like? Uh, that and I don't know if again I don't know if Truman would say it's pick good causes because it's still you're picking something as opposed to I am loyal to certain things and it's not good and bad. It's you're loyal to Hannenberg's. I'm loyal to Magby. Does that make like? But even even that loyalty is a choice. Like, I, I, is your discomfort with saying trying to disinvolve the individual? But of course, every choice involves is some matter of free will. Yeah, I guess so. Right? Is that the discomfort? Like that duality? I wouldn't call it discomfort. I just if we're if we're criticizing the Randian position, I want to make. I'm just curious what that alternative place we end with is. Um, and I don't. You, there's no one right. There's no one sentence that says therefore because we're not only loyal to the individual, we're loyal to the what? And that you're saying to good causes, but good no, co- just to the good. If, but that's what. But Rand would say we're loyal to what's objectively good, which is the being a maker. Does, my my issue with it would be her objective goodness. I don't know that necessarily making products or making new technology is what's good for the world. It's the best. What are you talking about? Right. So that that we we yes. I and her differentiate on what is good, and she says pursuing self interest is good. I would say dying to self is good. So. While we are both, she would hate you. I know <laughs> we're not. We would not be friends. Yes. But I think this is what every like. This is the notion of every philosopher. Every philosopher is trying to say this is what I think is good for man to do. Right. We disagree, me and her. Right. And that's kind of where it ends, I guess. That's where all of these end. Yeah, for sure. No. Right. I, that, like, yes, of course. She would say it's objective, and I'd say, yeah. yeah well, I think you're wrong right. about that. Right. Yeah. Anyway, that's what I got. Um, to sum- summarize, I think John Galt is therape- uh, is an example of the therapeutic self, and um, and Dostoevsky's criticism of it is a good one. That if everybody is just going to stand up and think that pure truth resides in their breast alone, and that they are suspicious at everybody else, I think there's a lot to say. Dostoevsky said it twice in his dream that everybody was filled with anxiety, that the world was an anxious place. 
I think, um, you know, I don't think it's too far off to say that we live in an era, in an age of anxiety. Um, and I think that therapeutic self is a huge part of it. Sure. Um, um, yeah. Anyway. All right. Well, this has been Classical Stuff You Should Know. And as always, if you like our show, you can give us money on patreon.com. <laughs> Support us, I that's, believe is the polite term. That's a fancy way to put it. But you can, I mean, you're just giving us money that is true. to keep on doing what we're doing. So we appreciate those who give us money. But Shout out to those guys. And the people who support us get stuff too. It's true. They really do. There are benefits, right? If you support us at the $10 level, you get all kinds of in-between episodes mm-hmm. and a monthly AMA. And then at the $100 level, which <laughs> shout out to our one guy who's got the hey, $100 level, you get a sweet sweatshirt and a pair of yellow Crocs and, uh, you know, whatever other goodies we make. So that's right. There's that. And you can email us at theguysatclassicalstuff.net. You can check us out on the twits, at CLSSCAL stuff, and our website, classicalstuff.net. And I think those are all our dots, right? Our dot net and our dot twit and all the dot Patreon. Did you say the email? Yeah. Okay, then yes. Dot, yeah, the the stuff. We got all our dots. We got all the stuff. Anyway, thanks for listening. And on behalf of the guys, this is AJ signing off. Ciao. Bye. Bye. Bye.